Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and we make reference to one of our good friends, Dr. Ben Caldwell, in quite a few of our episodes. Uh, usually is, good, by the way. Usually in in the brightest of lights, uh, he has. Wait, been. wait, wait! Before before we consider, is are you saying usually the references are good, or usually the episodes are good? I think both are fair. Okay, all right. So our, our very eager to speak guest today is Dr. Ben Caldwell. He's returning for his second full episode official. with us, his second official one. He, he has made a smattering of appearances before, and. He's here to talk to us uh, about a number of different things that are related to the COVID-19 pandemic, the ways that we're all being quarantined, things that we need to all be considering as far as how we handle our practices and ourselves. So thank you for joining us. And I think the most important question on everybody's mind is, what song do you sing when you're washing your hands right now? <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, I actually learned a long time ago, and by the way, it's good to talk with you both as always. Uh, I learned a long time ago that for doing CPR, um, it's really good to have that song staying alive. It's got the right rhythm for CPR. And so if I just sort of run through that chorus once or twice, I'm pretty sure that that's long enough. So that's what tends to be in my head these days. Well, and we do hope that you'll stay alive, Ben. We really, really care about you. Well, thank you. I think, you know, <laughs> wishing someone survival is just about literally the least that you can do. So <laughs> I appreciate that you'd like me to not die. <laughs> yeah, we don't want you to die. So we, we do promise that there is good content coming. <laughs> <laughs> we're not we're not just all stir crazy trying to just have a reason to get together and, and chat. We really do have some great. Not that there would be anything wrong with that. No, no. But I think as far as like actually putting out an episode, I think we should actually have some some. Oh, we're content. recording right now? Oh, man, you guys should have told me. <laughs> we want to make sure that we are getting to some quality content here. And I think it's important that we talk about this breakneck speed of transitioning our practices, of managing COVID-19, all of the things that are happening. What are you seeing and how are you navigating this right now? Well, it's certainly been a, a dramatic change for all of our practices, more or less overnight. And so what I'm seeing in my colleagues' practices is, you know, we're all trying to adapt as best we can. And all of the systems around us are trying to adapt as best and as quickly as they can. And 
not all of those things are always totally aligned because it is such a, a quick adaptation, but you know, something might move a little more quickly over here than it can over here. And that leaves people wondering about what to do. And so I see a lot of anxiety about, you know, folks worried that they're doing something wrong somewhere, but they don't necessarily know what it is, or they've got, you know, a supervisor over here telling them they can do this, but an administrator over here telling them they can't do that. And then there's all these questions about billing and practicing across state lines and what's happening with HIPAA and, and on and on and on. Everybody is trying so hard to just provide great continuity of care to our clients as best we can in a really, really difficult environment. And so as we get in here to talking about some of the specifics, it's important to me to come from that framework that, yeah, there's technical stuff involved here and it's worth awareness of the technical stuff and keeping track of what's changing and how and when and all that. But given the larger context of this environment that we're all in right now, the odds of somebody getting into big trouble for trying the best they could to continue to give good quality mental health care to somebody who needs it are, are very low. You heard it here, the slippery slope. Ben's encouraging you to just go ahead and slide down that pathway. That is a forever excuse according to Ben. And one of the questions that seems to be at the center of a lot of debates right now is with social distancing, with quarantining, that there seems to be this debate around should therapists stop seeing their clients in person. And for a vast majority of people in private practices, they are making this leap over to telehealth. Some agencies are working in capacities where they have to continue to see people in person. This doesn't take into account the client's end of things. And for people who are running into clients that don't consent for telehealth, they don't want to be seen online, what kind of of scenarios are we looking at here? Because it seems to me that as ethics codes move towards, you know, clients have a choice if the way that they receive treatment, that if they're not consenting for telehealth, the law says don't do telehealth with them. There's other considerations for clients who might not be good candidates for telehealth. Yeah, I've read some really, really powerful, emotional, personal arguments that people have been making begging and pleading with any healthcare professional who can practice from, from home via telehealth to please practice via telehealth to help limit the spread of the virus to vulnerable populations. And I got to tell you, I get it. I, I know that we're learning more every day about how this spreads. Even, you know, you might be positive and spreading the virus when you are entirely asymptomatic we know how many people around us are immunocompromised or other, otherwise vulnerable in some way. And anytime you have face-to-face -face contact with anyone, whether it's a, a client, a colleague, or whoever else, you are increasing the risk that uh, the virus will spread more quickly to more people. At the same time, there are those clients for whom telehealth is simply not an option. Either they don't have access to the technology, they don't feel comfortable using it, or they're otherwise unwilling or unable. And for those clients, you don't have an 
obligation to see them in person necessarily. If, if your practice or your clinic is moving to an entirely telehealth model, then a client's reluctance isn't a mandate for you to keep going into the office when you don't want to and you're being told not to do it. It's sort of like a court-mandated client, right? They can, they can still consent for therapy. They don't have to go to see you. They can find another provider. And depending on what the client wants, it might be that what they're wanting out of therapy is something that is very difficult or even impossible to find. And I say this with, with all the love and care in the world, that's not necessarily your problem as a therapist. It's not your job to take undue risks to see clients just because that's the kind of care the client wants right then. However, there are also those clinics and those agencies that have kept their doors open precisely to see in person those clients who uh, are high risk, can't be seen by a telehealth, or otherwise it's sort of the, the in-person mental health care of last resort. For you as an individual clinician, if your workplace is continuing to tell you to go to work, and you are uncomfortable going to work, that has to be a discussion between you and your employer. On an individual level, I don't think any of us is obligated, either ethically or morally, to provide services by telehealth or to provide services in person. There's a lot that's dependent on your context. But there can be consequences of the choices that you make in terms of the clients that you're able to treat, whether your employer is willing to keep you on, all of those kinds of things. I'm thinking about a situation where I, I currently have all of my clients via telehealth. I made the transition. For me, it was something where I was very thoughtful, but it, because of the thoughtfulness that I, I had, and, and we may get into it, I was able to do that pretty seamlessly. My clients kept their appointments or wasn't a drop-off. It was very nice, and I was very fortunate for that. I know that there are clinicians who see clients who have higher risk, potentially who have psychotic symptoms children. There's a lot of different types of folks who are finding it very hard to feel clinically positive around a shift to telehealth. And there's also those clients who potentially cannot be treated well by telehealth and may even be harmed by it. I think about a, a client that I've had in the past that was very paranoid about, you know, I've actually, I'm thinking of several, but paranoid about those types of communication platforms. And that would have been very harmful to to kind of force that issue. Sure. I'm, I'm actually putting this question to both of you. Like, what are the thoughts that we have about what do you do with these clients? Because there's a human element. There's, I, I personally have asthma. I, I started, you know, kind of isolating prior to the big telehealth trans, you know, everybody locked in their homes kind of thing. I also recognize there are clients who might do better with in-person services. And I've had to grapple with that. But then there's also the client end of, preference, which I get, you know, if it's the preference piece, I, I don't feel uncomfortable referring someone out if it's a preference issue. But if it's a clinical issue, I get worried about abandoning a client at this time. And so that's kind of the scenario I'd like to put out to the to the group here. Well, let me talk from a couple of different perspectives on that first. And just because you mentioned client abandonment, I think from an ethical compliance standpoint, we tend to worry more about client abandonment than is necessary. It has always been true that there are some clients who cannot or will not access mental health care within the context in which you provide it. 
And the simple fact that somebody, for example, can't afford your fee or they stop being able to afford your fee and they're not willing to go someplace else for treatment, that doesn't mean if you terminate with them that you are abandoning them, right? You provide them referrals to other low fee clinics, places that they could go, whether they take those referrals or not is mm -hmm. up to them, right? You do the best you can to handle any kind of crisis issues and provide them the avenue if they want to further their treatment. But you're not obligated to take on all comers, right? Whether they can pay you or not, whether they fit into your schedule or not, whether they're a fit for your competence or not. So it has always been true that there are some folks that we can't reach or, or don't reach. And there's a whole separate conversation to be had, and, and you guys have had it in, in several different ways, about the fundamental flaws in our existing mental health care system, right? We always do the best we can in the context in which we are working. The context has changed, but that fundamental principle has not. Now, from a sort of more emotional or even more of a, a moral perspective, we always are trying to weigh risks and benefits, right? How can we help the people that we are in this work to help at minimal risk of harm to them or to us or to anyone else? I think a lot of us, and me included, are unsettled right now because that math has changed in ways that aren't entirely clear and in ways that seem to be shifting by the day. So trying to figure out is this particular client's you know, balance of willingness and how they fit into my competence and what they can pay, et cetera, et cetera, is that worth for me the the downsides, the, the risks involved of seeing them at all, seeing them via telehealth, seeing them uh, at a reduced rate for a limited time. I mean, all those questions are just really foggy, I think, for a lot of therapists with a lot of clients right now. And I don't, I don't want to begrudge anybody that fogginess. We're all trying to wrestle with these questions as best we can. And as long as we are thoughtful about that process and we can you know, sort of make sense of our decision-making. And if, if we're really concerned about it, document our decision-making. As long as we're able to do that, I don't think anybody's doing anything quote-unquote wrong. Um, I, I think we're all struggling. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Since you did put that question out to both of us, what Ben said is basically my answer. 
and maybe oh, just that to, seems very familiar the two well, of you disagreeing with each other all the time i feel well, like i'm going to be ganged up on well <laughs> and maybe even just to to add a little bit to it and, and provide another example is I don't think that there's going to be a universal black and white answer to this, that it can be highly dependent from client to client, that one particular case that I'm working on in my practice is a conserved adult who has some issues that pertain to you know being asked of things that they don't typically want to just do. And this is a client who, for various reasons, is not a good candidate for telehealth in general. And in discussions with the family, they have found that basically leaving the client alone during this time of quarantine means that there's no particular issues that are happening in their house. And so the best decision in this scenario is no treatment until the client can be seen in person again. Now, that's not going to be true for every single client. And this is something where doing no treatment may not work for everybody. It may be a need for a warm referral. It may need to be a scenario that you do consider seeing in person. But what happened in this was a thoughtful consultation, not only with other professionals, which is part of your decision-making process in these, but also a really good and thorough discussion with the parties on the receiving end of your services as far as what services can and should look like when these scenarios do come up. And this is where I think with the ethics codes moving towards specifically saying that we need to follow an ethical decision-making process that spells out how we approach looking at our ethics in these situations to guide our clinical work is speaking to this very thoughtful process of the overall picture altogether. My response may be coming from a place of, of having worked in South Los Angeles and having worked with really high needs clients with a lot of practical things that I'm sure are happening right now with a lot of the programs and a lot of the, the, the way the economy is shifting. A lot of clients who were in and out of risk for suicidality and homicidality and you know some of these other pieces child abuse those types of of issues and to me when i think about a, a client that's at very high risk who i am competent to see in person who i have a long standing relationship with and who is not appropriate for telehealth needs ongoing support and is at high risk for suicidality or other types of abuses and i and i'm saying I'm going to refer you right now. That feels really, really bad. And I feel like there is a piece of this that, that should be considered. I chose in my private practice to, to shift my practice to folks who had a little bit more capacity to do some of these things that were flexible because I was traveling more and I was already incorporating telehealth when I needed to and those types of things. So I'd already shifted my practice. So I'm not personally grappling with this. But for a lot of practices, if they're, if they're doing the work, that requires that level of service, some of them may just choose to continue in person and do all the things that we've talked about with making sure that you're following, you know, kind of sanitation and, and, and cleaning and, and whatever you're able to do and making sure you're seeing clients who can be seen by telehealth, via telehealth and, and, and having fewer people coming in and out of your office. For those clients who are longstanding relationships, who are in crisis right now, 
and are not appropriate for telehealth, I don't feel comfortable saying, well, you can just refer them out. Ethically, you're good. Oh, totally. That's, I think that's what, what I'm saying when, when I say the math has changed, right? There are clients who are high need, high risk, who aren't for whatever reason appropriate or, or able to do telehealth. And I think it's very reasonable to ask what happens to those folks? If we say sort of as a larger professional community that, that even for this hopefully relatively short period of time, we are not going to provide any services whatsoever in person. And, and honestly, part of what makes it so difficult is not knowing exactly how long this is going to go, right? It's one thing to say, we as a collective community need to take two weeks off. It's a very different thing to say that we as a collective community need to not be meeting anyone in person for six to eight weeks or maybe longer than that. And right now with us not knowing really when we're going to be able to safely start going back to our offices, it becomes really difficult to assess the balance of this client's need and the urgency of that need versus the risks involved when we're seeing people in person. And that's why, you know, even in the presence of these, these very, I think, impassioned and, and well-grounded pleas from our colleagues saying, please don't see anyone in person right now. I can't go quite that far. I, I think for somebody who is, who has really genuinely Uh, taken a difficult look at it and made the choice that because of the population that you work with, that they're going to continue seeing folks in person. And of course, doing all the appropriate distancing stuff and the hygiene stuff to minimize risk as much as they can. I, I can't find myself in a place of judgment toward that mental health professional. I, I think in the absence of anybody willing to do that, then you're trading one set of risks for another in terms of people who have a psychotic break and wind up hospitalized, people who become suicidal or even die by suicide. A lot of our work is about understanding, balancing, and managing risk. And I think this is part of that. I know in some of the conversations that you and I have had offline right now that one of the things that we're observing is for, especially for people who work with college students who have been shipped home from their universities that often going back several states away of continuity of care for those clients. State lines still exist? (laughs) Well, they still (laughs) exist. That's true. A couple of things related to this. One is that I've seen some some therapists who have wildly misunderstood the federal use of enforcement discretion as it relates to HIPAA. There was this announcement that came out not too long ago saying that basically for as long as we're in this national emergency, that the feds are going to relax HIPAA enforcement. And I saw people understanding that incorrectly to mean that they could now see anybody anywhere through any technology. And that's not the case. State lines do still exist. Uh, There was also a change in Medicare rules that tried to lift some of the restrictions on, geographic restrictions on Medicare and and providing services to somebody in another state in the Medicare system. Psychologists and social workers are Medicare providers. MFTs and counselors are not. But regardless of which profession you are in, that really only applies to 
the inner workings of the Medicare system. So licensure laws and, and the state geographic nonsense that comes with them really have not changed. There are some states that have done executive orders or other emergency actions to allow for uh, telehealth across state lines, again, in the context of this emergency. Most states, at least as of today, and it's the end of March, it's uh, the 26th, have not taken that kind of an action. And so it is still at least possible that if you were to see that college student who went back to their home in a different state uh, via telehealth, that you could be practicing in that other state without a license. Now, there's two very different lenses here to look at this from. One is the, the legal lens, right? And that's just the reality. You, you would still potentially be practicing in that other state without a license. The other lens to look at this from is the pragmatic lens, where the legal risk is actually fairly low. It's not non-existent, but it's fairly low. No state is going to act against you in the absence of a complaint, for example. Also, you can make a pretty good case, especially now, about the importance of continuity of care and making sure that that client doesn't go into crisis, that client doesn't become suicidal. You're maintaining an ongoing relationship with them for the preservation of their mental health. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't just suddenly cut off contact with those college students going home to different states because, well, you're in a different state now and too bad. I would, if it looks like this is going to go on for a while, I would start to make some efforts to connect them with a provider in that home state. But I would make that as warm of a handoff as possible. And I, I wouldn't simply just say, once you cross the state line, I'm out. Good luck to you. With all the misunderstanding about HIPAA and Kurt referencing the slippery slope that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we we may be on what are the actual things as of recording so you know march 26th around lunchtime in california <laughs> <laughs> like what are the actual things that therapists need to be know need to know about right now that impact their practice okay sure well i think the the most important is to I know everybody's trying to adapt as effectively and as quickly as they can, but please put some thought into moving to telehealth. So that means that your ethical responsibilities have not gone away. You still need to provide security and confidentiality of the communication medium if you're using telehealth. There are a bunch of really, really awesome telehealth platforms out there that will give you the business associate agreement that's required under HIPAA and that are easy to use, easy to get on board with. You know, I work for Simple Practice, so of course I'm going to sing the praises of Simple Practice's telehealth platform, but there are a bunch of good ones out there. And it is a wiser choice to go with one of those many easy, affordable options than to go with something that is not HIPAA compliant and potentially is not secure simply because, well, it's an emergency, and so I'm going to act like the rules have ceased to exist. So 
first of all, we just need to be thoughtful about the process. Make sure that you are comfortable, familiar, appropriately trained in the technology. And if your state has a requirement that you need to do a certain amount of telehealth training before providing telehealth, do that training as quickly as you can. There are a ton of good training resources out there right now as well. A lot of companies have gone to great lengths to make their telehealth training affordable, even free in some instances. The other thing in terms of just the, the broader gathering of information about what's happening and what's changing from day to day, please, please, please rely on official sources. It's sort of like a game of telephone when people, especially in, in some of our therapist Facebook groups, you know, start talking about what they heard from one supervisor about what rule changed in their context because of some law change. Only go to official sources. So your licensing board for any HIPAA stuff, the Department of Health and Human Services, right? Your state government in terms of executive orders about what is an essential business that can stay open versus a non-essential business. Anything that is an official source for official information. And I know that it's really frustrating sometimes going to those official sources because sometimes the official sources are slow to put out information or even to make some of the changes that we can recognize are necessary. Really good example here is what a lot of state licensing boards are dealing with right now in terms of emergency orders related to license or registration renewal, exam availability because test centers have shut down, continuing education requirements, all of these things that are suddenly up in the air Licensing boards are really wrestling with across the country as best and as quickly as they can, but they have, in many cases, limited authority to just change the rules on their own. Any kind of rule changes in those areas need to go through um, maybe a higher level organization within the state or sometimes actually need need to be done by executive order or through the legislature. So if you're not seeing the information that you would like to see, from your licensing board, of course, it's fine to contact them and and push for the changes that you understand are important. But please understand, every licensing board is keenly aware of what's happening in the world around them. And they're all doing the best they can to accommodate as quickly as they can. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. In talking about some of these Facebook groups, one of the other questions that I'm seeing come up quite a bit is people's renewed interest in, or maybe initial interest in developing a professional will. And you've long been an advocate of this, and I've echoed across a few other episodes and maybe even deferred all of the credit when I bring it up back to you. (laughs) But when we're talking about professional wills, what are people needing to put into those that can really allow them to kind of check that box off in case uh, they do become sick or incapacitated uh, during whatever health comes up here in the coming months? I mean, look, one of the things this has taught us, right, is that emergencies happen without warning and our practice can be impacted in ways that we don't expect and haven't necessarily prepared for. 
the whole reason to have a professional will, which by the way, is a requirement for anybody in independent practice based on your professional ethics code, no matter what your mental health profession is, you need to have something that establishes a plan for your unanticipated absence from your practice. The most important thing to have in that professional will is somebody who is designated to take over for you. If something happens and you're not able to uh, continue in practice, communicate with your clients, etc., that person is called an executor. And you can find a bunch of free templates for professional wills online. I think some are better than others. Uh, we have one that's up for free on the Simple Practice blog. You can just plug in your email address and get this you know, detailed. It's like an eight-page template, so there's a lot of detail there. But any of the free ones that you can find are fine as long as you have something. I'm of the mindset that it's it's a lot better to have something than to have nothing at all. If all that you really have is a defined executor for your professional will, but that is in writing, that's going to save the day. If you have a medical emergency or uh, you become stranded on a cruise ship somewhere and that other person needs to be able to access your office, access your records, communicate with clients, they, if they have a copy of that professional will, that will be the documentation that they need to provide to whatever other third parties they need to provide it to, to get access to the stuff they need access to. So stepping back from that, because I think there's a lot of fear right now around health and I'm just kind of imagining if I were to get sick, how I would navigate that talking with my clients. Cause I think there's times when in olden times, when we met in person and if we had a little sniffle, we still went to the office. There's a very different conversation, but how do we, how do we navigate this together? Maybe I'll even pull it back from health, but like, how do we navigate this together? Because I think I'm finding in my conversations with my clients, a lot more discussion, human to human around how are you doing? How are you holding up? And, and some disclosure. And I could imagine, should I get sick? Or even if just the allergies, because we're going into spring, even if my allergies pop up and I start sniffling or coughing, like what recommendations do both of you guys have about how to navigate those conversations? Because for me, I feel like I'm just really trying to connect human to human, but I, I know that there could be a panic if, if, my, if I cancel my sessions because I'm sick. And I just what thoughts do you guys have? Well, I, I really like your starting place there. And, and I'll tell you, for as difficult as this very rapid transition has been, one of the most heartening things for me in all of this is this sense that we're seeing both in the professional world and also just sort of in our larger communities around us, that we are all in this together. It's been really nice to see some of the the human to human connection that's been happening around people helping each other, you know, donating whatever extra supplies they had at home because somebody couldn't get what they needed at the grocery store, right? These, these little moments of community, I think, are really wonderful, and I hope they persist long past the, the immediate emergency. And I think that's going to be really critical when it comes to those conversations about health, right? If you go to the office with a sniffle, you know, a month ago or two months ago, people might not have thought twice about that. They might have thought, oh, she's got allergies or might have a little cold or whatever. We're not even going to worry about it. Now, of course, that is get away from me immediately because you have the plague. And yes, there's so <laughs> much, um, it's understandable. It, it causes so much anxiety. And that anxiety is absolutely understandable given the risks of coronavirus. And so this very upfront communication, I think, is really important. 
you know, if I have a, uh, a sniffle as I go to the office and I'm very confident that it is allergies, then I'm going to do two things. Number one, I'm going to be proactive about telling my clients before they come to their session, hey, just so you know, got a sniffle today. I'm quite sure it's allergies. And also, if you as a client are uncomfortable with that, because I would understand, maybe I'm going to relax my cancellation policy, or maybe I'm going to work with you to reschedule, or maybe I'm going to offer telehealth today rather than that in-person appointment. And that's that's just navigating a, a whole new context. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is going to change some of our social conversation on a lasting basis, and it's going to change some of our social behavior on a lasting basis. And I think one of the key areas where it's going to change our social behavior on a lasting basis is how we handle that sort of little bit of allergies or that minor cold or that that little cough, where normally we would just sort of press through it. And, and U.S. culture especially has been, you keep going to work, you keep sending the, the kids to school. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to change on an, on an ongoing basis. We're starting to see some rumors around, you know, this idea of essential workers. And are you hearing what I am about people needing to maybe show documents that they are an essential worker in order to be able to travel around some of these areas that are facing stricter quarantines? Yeah, there are. I was reading news articles about this last night about how different states stay at home orders are working differently and even different cities. And it is possible if you are in a, a hotspot with kind of a strict stay at home order that you know, you might be pulled over or, or you might be asked about, hey, what are you doing here by your somebody in your office building, your landlord even. And in those instances, it can be very, very helpful to have documentation of your professional license or registration with you to, to show I am a healthcare provider. I'm providing essential services in this time and I need to be able to continue to provide those services. And I do want to do a little bit of a a shout out to Simple Practice because I have been really, really satisfied with my telehealth experience. I actually more recently shifted all of my telehealth clients to Simple Practice Telehealth and it's, it's been working very well. So thank, you know, Tell Howard, thanks. Uh, he's doing a good job. You guys are all doing I'll a good job. I'll be happy to do so. Uh, <laughs> the other part that I think, I, I, you know, I know we need to wrap up, but the, the other part that I just wanted to check in, Simple Practice Learning has been putting out some of the stuff that you're, you've been talking about. You've been very graciously not mentioning that, but Simple Practice Learning has some telehealth training that's available for free or lower cost. You also have the professional will training. Where can people go and, and what what type of education would you recommend folks get right now? And I'm going to say from Simple Practice Learning because you're the one that's here. Well, thank you. It's We do have a whole bunch of different uh, telehealth-related trainings up at Simple Practice Learning, and it's just simplepracticelearning.com. We have a course on telehealth legal and ethical issues. It's just an hour. It packs a lot of information into that hour. For better or worse, I am your instructor for that course. And that is free through March 31st. <laughs> now, We've had that free for a couple of weeks. I I don't know what's going to sort of happen with that on April 1st, but at least for the moment, it's free through March 31st. We do have some other trainings that are also pretty quick, efficient trainings that are low cost. We've got a HIPAA training from an LCSW who's fantastic. Her name's Katie Malinsky. It's a, it's a really great presentation. It's an hour and a half. Um, we have a telehealth getting started course that's less about the legal and ethical issues and more about really the practicalities of, you know, how do I set up, make this clinical connection work. 
Um, that's a, an hour that's from Melissa Douglas, who's a great trainer. And uh, we've got one that's specific to California telehealth law. So if you're a master's level professional in California, there are actually specific things by law that you need to do with each client before starting telehealth with them and then at each telehealth session. So that's a one hour course and that goes into the details on, on those particular things. It's also a really good time if you've got some unexpected time at home. This is a good time to be catching up on your continuing education hours, regardless of uh, whether it's with us or somebody else. Take the courses that interest you, that are going to expand your skills and and help your practice and drive you in the right direction going forward. I I think a a lot of folks right now who didn't have all of their clients convert over to telehealth are now sorting out, what do I do with my day? What do I do with this spare time? (laughs) Partly just so I'm not looking at news articles all day long and freaking myself out, right? Well, one of the things that you can do is sort of invest in your practice in the sense of of taking the time to expand your skills or do a training that you hadn't had time to do previously. Our guest today is Dr. Ben Caldwell. Thank you so much for being a friend of the show and using your time to help share all of your knowledge with us in just this crazy transition time. So uh, we'll include uh, links to simple practice and all of that kind of stuff in our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. Simple practice is also the presenting major sponsor that helps us put on the therapy reimagined conference. And for the latest updates on what we're doing with that, you can always check us out on the website as well. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Ben Caldwell. Thank you both. And hey, in all sincerity, I don't know if you're going to edit this out or not. It's fine. Um, But in all sincerity, I really, really appreciate you both for what you do with the conference and sort of the bigger picture of your careers, but also specifically right now, you both have been uh, such a good calming presence for a lot of folks saying, okay, here's what's happening. And also it's not the apocalypse. Like we're going to get through (laughs) doing this episode. You guys provide really, really useful and timely resources. And I am so grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the modern therapist survival guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.